Wow, I'm feeling emotional. That was Sermon 1, and I get to do Sermon 2. <laughs> you know, in all seriousness, uh, what's going on in Ukraine and uh, the Christians' response to what's going on in Ukraine, uh, because there are a lot of Christ followers in Ukraine, is a great reminder to us here in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, that every single Sunday... The world of people from every tribe and nation and tongue sing in unison, great is the Lord. Man, we can live in our Christian bubble sometimes, and it is not good for us. Uh, God will come back to get all of us, all of his people, or we will see him face to face. As we sang this Sunday. Man, that was rich and good. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, 1 through 13. We have notes on your seats. Uh, we have an outline you can download if you are online and at home. I want to start with this. I have a desire, and I spoke about it this summer, to finish strong, to, like many of you, to endure faithfully till the very end of my life or if Christ returns to chasing hard after Christ. Always repenting, always changing, uh, as the reformers would say. And we know without a doubt, because we've been teaching through the book of Hebrews, we know without a doubt that it was written to exhort Jewish Christians to endure faithfully in the most terrible of circumstances. Yet I think what we forget, I think what I forgot until this week, is really that's a major theme in all the Bible. Go back and read the New Testament. Over and over and over, the New Testament writers say, endure, persevere. They don't say endure except for or as an excuse for. No, they, they just exhort us to. As the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Christians are to be marathoners, not sprinters. I have a daughter who is a sprinter. Some days she'll run two 100s and a warm-up, and she's done. They're like a jaguar. Marathoners, anybody can run marathoners, nearly. <laughs> but they just train differently. To say we are living in, un in an unstable world, I wrote this before a few days ago, is an understatement. In light of that, we as Christ followers are hopefully realizing again what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, 28, that you and I are sojourners and exiles in this world, that this world is not our home. There is no such thing as a pain-free and trouble-free life. Christ himself is showing us, his people, that in this world you will have Tribulation, John 16. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All that desire to live a godly life in Christ will be. It's a promise. Persecuted. Acts 14. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. The biblical assumption 
is that the Christian life is incredibly hard, painful, and difficult. 1 Peter 4 says, do not be surprised when, not if, the fiery trial comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. So if this is not mine or yours or our Christian mindset, then we must ask God to do a heart work and wake us up into what is biblical reality. When I say all that, I know it's hard. I know it's frustrating. I know your lives are filled with anxiety. I'm human too. I know it is stressful. I know it can be deeply sad and disappointing. I know many of you, names and faces are running through my head and heart all week as I prepared, are going through things that you never thought you would deal with, just as I have gone through things that I never thought I would have to deal with. Physical sickness. This week at our men's Bible study, I saw Greg Elmore show up. And I talked to Greg or texted with him this morning. Greg Elmore is waiting for a liver transplant. He has multiple serious diseases. And this man showed up with a smile to learn how to share his faith. It nearly took my breath away. There's relational betrayal. There's death of our loved ones. There's job loss, financial pain. Our children are struggling. Add to that, we, the people of God, are being demonized by a culture because we only affirm God's sexual ethic. One man, one woman married for a lifetime. But as John Piper says, this is reality. And the Christian who runs away from this reality runs away from Christ himself. We are called as Christians to run into the wind. We are called as Christians to swim upstream against all odds, all difficulties, all circumstances to move toward building the kingdom of God, even as we suffer. Paul writes about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He puts it this way. We are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich in Christ. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. See, the real danger is not our hardships and our suffering. The real danger is our response to our hardships and suffering. The danger is that those who know Jesus will, as Galatians 6 says, grow weary in doing good. Or in Hebrews 2, that we will drift through life. Or that in 1 Timothy 4, we will fail to see that there's a fight to be fought. And in 2 Timothy 4, there is a race to be won. That is the great danger of the Christian church. So this reality makes us ask the question, <clears throat> what is it that makes one endure faithfully and live for the kingdom of God until the end? What is it? that can wean me and you off the lure of the world? Paul gives us the answer in 2 Thessalonians 
3.5. Here it is. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfast promises of Christ. That is what will do it. And our passage this morning goes into great detail of exactly that in Hebrews 8 through 1 through 13. He does it in a profound way. He tells us as clear as ever, as clear as ever, that Jesus is better. Read with me, if you would, the first five verses. Hebrews 8. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you when you were up on the mountain." So our first point is we have a better high priest. I don't know about you, but when I do Bible study, if you're a Bible teacher, one of the, it's difficult at times to find the big idea of a passage, especially when you're not the smartest guy in the world like me. But when the writer says what he does in verse 8-1, man, I went, I can get that. Look what he says. He says, the main point. The main point, now the point in what we are saying is this. I was like, yes. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews is telling us of everything that I have said in chapters 1 through 7. This is the summary of it. This is what I've been trying to get across to you. Many have called it the crown of the argument, all that has been said and will be said in Hebrews. Our author is making a logical argument. He's building his case rationally. And here's his theme. Jesus is better. The end of verse 1, he says, Jesus is better because he is fully qualified high priest. Look what he says. We have such a high priest. Now here's the question. Why didn't he just say we have a high priest? Why did he say we have such a high priest? I know it is because he wants us to remember. He wants them, the Jewish Christians, to remember the certain qualities about Jesus as a high priest. He wants them to remember all that he's already said. Hebrews 2.17, what kind of high priest do we have? It says, like his brothers in every way, so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest to satisfy God's wrath for the sins of people. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, what kind of high priest do we have? One who has passed through the heavens, able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but he himself without sin. 
Hebrews 5, 9, what kind of high priest? One who is perfect and the source of our eternal salvation. Hebrews 6, 19, what kind of high priest? A sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Hebrews 7, 25, from last week, what kind of high priest? One who saves completely and securely all who trust in him. And he makes intercession for us. Yes, Jesus is a holy and innocent high priest, exalted above the heavens, not one who needs to offer up sacrifices for sin because he has no sin. So instead, he offers up himself once and for all. And so the writer says, we have such a high priest. And then he uses the word we have, and it actually means we possess such a high priest. Jesus, our high priest, is all mine, and he is all yours if you know him. He is a high priest that has made us friends with the living God. He's a high priest that gives you and I all we need for this life and the life to come. And there is nothing better in this world than that. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He asked a question, what truly makes life enjoyable on earth? His answer, that our place in Christ's kingdom is forever secure. Notice in our first few verses, he also says he's enthroned in glory. He, he uses this phrase, who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven? He's making this contrast of what is so familiar with the Jews, and that is there's an Old Testament high priest who stood on his feet and walked in the Holy of Holies with bells around his robe, so in a rope around his waist in case that he, they could hear him, and if the bell stopped ringing and he died and had a heart attack, they could jerk him out of the Holy of Holies, and no one would have to go in and get him. But he was on his feet the whole time. And then the next year, he did the same thing. Our high priest, notice, sits. He is sitting, he is telling us, and he's telling the Jewish Christians, it is finished. It is done. It is completed. The work of saving sinners is absolutely finished, never to be or have to be repeated again. And his seat is at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God. He exalted, Jesus Christ is exalted more than anyone or anything, the throne of complete power and authority. And so now we go back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. We have a high priest who is one, a priest who sits on the throne, the only king priest ever. That's our high priest. So first of all, our writer tells us we have a better high priest. The second thing he lets us know in our text, verses 6 and 7, is we have a better minister and mediator with better promises. It's all better. Look at verse 6 and 7. <clears throat> verse 6. <clears throat> but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted 
on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Here our writer bears down, if you would, on the substance or core of why Jesus and the new covenant is better than Moses and the old covenant. Remember the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic law. It consisted of the Ten Commandments plus all the rules and regulations written in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. It reflected the moral law of God, which is a reflection of God's holy nature, which never changes. Get this, because God never changes. But it also contained what we would call social or ceremonial laws that Israel had to obey. And those are the ones that have become obsolete. They're no longer in play because of the new covenant. But we need to know this. The moral law of God will never be obsolete because it reflects perfectly the nature of a holy God. So what pleased God then will always please God, and what God hated then, God will always hate now. Think about the moral law in terms of thou shall not lie, thou shall not steal. That's still the same. Nothing's changed. And Sinclair Ferguson, one of my favorite Bible teachers, puts it like this. He said, God designed the role of the law or the old covenant in a series of unique stages. The first one is before the fall with Adam. The second one is the law given to Moses at Mount Sinai. And then the third stage or third form that God gave us the law is the law in Christ. And so I want to summarize those to bring us to the conclusion that we have a better minister, better mediator, with better promises. First stage is with Adam. Remember Adam, he lived in the garden with no sin. And here there was no need for a written law, because a written moral law, because the moral law of God was written on Adam's heart. Adam was in some ways the perfect display of the law in Genesis 1 and 2, before sin. Because he was created in the image of God, he walked with God in the cool of the garden, he had daily intimacy with God that was uninterrupted by sin. One writer put it this way, he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. And God could say about his first son, Adam, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The first Adam. But as we know, Adam had the potential to sin, and that potential turned from potential to reality in Genesis 3. The moral law, though, is still, here's the problem, the moral law is still on the heart of every person born since Adam. But Romans tells us that it's it's inaccessible. It is dominated by evil and sin and a debased mind. We all bear instinctively the knowledge of God's moral law in our conscience. But the more we sin, the more our sin nature thrives, 
the more we push it down and are unable to see it, access it because of our spiritual blindness. We cannot obey God's moral law. Man, you feel this. Cannot obey it, even though we're still held responsible for it. Before Christ, you're still held responsible, but you can't obey. The second stage is the law at Mount Sinai or the Mosaic Covenant. So here's what God does. God writes the law again, not on a heart like Adam, but he writes the law on stone on Mount Sinai and gives us, as I said, the Mosaic Covenant. And God chose another son. It's sort of a plural son. His name was who? Israel. And this son acted just like the first son, Adam. He disobeyed, he was evil, and it all came natural to Israel because the scriptures tell us the heart is deceitful beyond anything else. We know from the Old Testament that even though God wrote the law down, the Israelites violated it over and over and over and over again. The law written on cold, hard stone had no power to affect that incredible sinfulness of the heart of man. The law was good, no doubt, but the form in which it came in had no power. Here's what Romans and Galatians combined together tell us about God's moral law and its purpose. First, the law was a tutor or a teacher to lead us to Christ. It was sort of the carrot. You can't reach it. You can't get the carrot. I need help. Secondly, it teaches us the law was a mirror to show us our sin. We said this before, but it's still the most relevant illustration here at this point is that is you and I did not have to teach our kids nor our grandkids. And my grandkids are way more precious at this point than my kids. We did not have to teach them how to sin, did we? They knew. And then it was also a restrainer of evil to keep us from being as bad as we could be. So in this second stage, the law is insufficient. Verse 7 tells us that the law had a flaw. And that rhymes. I just realized that. Stage three, the law in Christ. Jesus did not come, let's, let's remind each other, to abolish the law or abolish the old covenant. He actually came to fulfill it, and fulfill it he did. He lived it out perfectly. He was better than the written law. He was an active, living illustration of God's perfect moral law. Now, we, it's what we know. We know Moses came down from the mountain to give us the law written on stone. We know Jesus came down from the mount of heaven to bring the law in flesh that he obeyed perfectly. And don't forget, not only did he fulfill every single dot and tittle of God's law, but he actually raised the standard, if you would, of the law and his sermon on the mount in Matthew 5. 
In Matthew 5, he did not change the law, but he let everyone know that the law was bigger than just actually what you do. It was about an incredible needed heart transplant or change. Remember what he said in Matthew 5? You have heard it said, do not murder. A lot of people could, could do that. He said, do not be angry at your brother. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. And then he raised it. Do not lust. His perfect example, there's no doubt, God in the flesh is helpful for you and I to see. But the reality of it is it even condemned us more. Because you and I not only can't obey the written law, we certainly can't obey when he raised the stakes. The law of God is rarely even talked about among Christians. And I'm going to say this phrase, and I think coming from me, I'm a grace guy. We're a grace church. We're a gospel-centered church. But we almost, it's not only grace. It's got to be grace and truth. Sometimes we have OD'd on grace. The non-Christian, we cannot just tell them that Jesus loves them. We must tell them that Jesus loves them, but we also, they must understand that their entire life they have lived in rebellious, rebellious violation of God's perfect moral law, and they are 100% deserving of his wrath and eternal torment. That was true of every one of us before we came to Christ. The joy of the believer comes when they understand, when they see clearly how deep and why they have violated God's perfect moral law, therefore violating God himself and were under condemnation, yet God in his great mercy saved them. That is the salvation that the writer of Hebrews speaks of. Oh, what a greatest salvation we have. It's not great. Monty said it in a way last week. I'm saying it again. Your salvation won't be great to you till you see how sinful you are. It's so free. It turns our eyes and our heart away from self-protection, and it turns our eyes and heart to worship for our great God. Huh. You remember the Pharisees? What did Jesus say to them? Boy, this ticked them off. You must be perfect. Like God is perfect. Can you imagine telling somebody, you must be perfect like God is perfect. You must be holy like God is holy. When their whole life was about crossing every T and dotting every I according to the law. <laughs> Blew their minds. And yet ticked them off so much that they killed him. And that's sort of what Jesus does. He either makes you repent or he makes you really mad. His ministry is better than the old covenant law because he obeyed it, obeyed it perfectly. So now we ask the question, how was the new covenant that Jesus mediates enacted on better promises? 
Hebrews 8.13 tells us. And what the writer does now is he quotes part of Jeremiah chapter 31. Starting with verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, he being God, God speaking here, the author says, because these are God's word from Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah 31 through 30, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Jeremiah the prophet wrote these words 600 years before Christ came. And here's what's happening here. This is the prophetic voice of Jeremiah speaking of the new covenant that was to come. And he is contrasting that, if you would, with the covenant, Mosaic covenant, God's covenant with Israel. Now, let's do a little history course here. Go back in history. Remember, prophet after prophet came to Israel and Judah calling God's people to a covenant obedience and loyalty, loyalty to Yahweh. And here's what Jeremiah says about that. Jeremiah says, yet they did not listen to God or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. So you have a new covenant. It was both needed and it was prophesied by Jeremiah. And in it, here's what happened. A new relationship between God and his people were, was brought into being. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, it tells us that we get a new heart. Here's the better part. Let me just read it again. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So the implanting of God's law into the heart and minds of God's people is more than just memorizing the word. The vast majority of Jews had large chunks of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, already memorized. Go read Deuteronomy 6 today. That's exactly what the exhortation is, to take God's word and write it on your hand and write it on your forehand and put it over the doorpost. Memorize, memorize, memorize. But we know they had failed miserably at obeying it. What it means here is to actually receive a new heart, a spiritual heart. 
Here's how the prophet Ezekiel puts it. He says, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them so they can obey my law. As we looked at the law before, remember the law was not the problem. The law was not what was at fault. The fault was in the evil human heart that the law had to work with. What is needed is not a better law because it was already perfect. What is needed is a new and better heart. A heart set free from the bondage of sin. A heart that has the power to do what God calls us to do. Here's what happens. Jesus' death ratifies or certifies, if you would, this new covenant. Remember what he said in his communion with his disciples? And the Holy Spirit seals it as soon as a person places their trust in Christ alone. Theologically speaking, the word is regeneration. And here's what it means. You and I were dead, and in Christ we are now alive spiritually. New heart. You and I didn't do anything for it. It happened at the very moment that you placed your trust in Christ. Boom, and the Holy Spirit seals it. Now, we'll still struggle with sin, but for the first time, we have the power to not sin. We have the power to obey. Before our heart transplant, I would put it this way, we were blind to our sin. Now we're able to see it. Before we loved our sin, now we hate it when we see it. The great Puritan author of the classic Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, put it this way. He said, at this moment, when the new heart happens, when the regeneration happens, when a person trusts Christ, he called it the birth of a holy war within each new Christ follower. Do you feel that holy war going on? It's a great sign that you know Christ. Secondly, the better covenant is the new knowledge. We get new knowledge. Look at verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor... And each one his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. So we know that the Israelites, they knew about the Lord because God had revealed himself to them. But we also know they were lacking this intimate, personal relationship, much like Adam had in the garden. That was not existent for the most part. Where now, Jeremiah tells us, when a person comes to Christ and they're in the church, they've trusted Christ, there's this personal relational connection with the Lord Jesus. There's no longer, the writer is saying, this status of prophet who's got this special relationship and, and the common folk. They all shall know me, he says. He mentions there, you'll no longer need teachers. Um, he, what he's really saying there is obviously all of us need to be teaching, but that we'll actually have all the same access to God. You have as much as I do. It's called the priesthood of the believers. 
This new heart along with new knowledge changes how we see others in ourselves. Before we would say, see my neighbor's sin. But now we say, see how I sin. This new knowledge changes how we see God. We once thought of him as sort of this distant, old, cruel, tyrant trying to ruin my life. He's always out to get me. No, no, no. But now we see him as a loving father. Because the best way to make a man keep the law is to make him fall in love with the one who gave the law. That's what happens with new knowledge. So we have a new heart. We have new knowledge. And lastly, new assurance. Verse 12. Not only does God come in the splendor of his grace and give us a new heart and new knowledge, and by that alters what you and I love and hate, but he completely wipes the slate clean of every sin that you and I have committed or will commit. I, we can't say that enough to ourselves. Slate wiped clean. Eternal pardon. All our sins, past, present, and future, gone once and for all, it is finished. He says he chooses to remember them no more. No more. After all this truth, it is why Jonathan Edwards said lukewarmness as a Christian is abominable. It makes no sense. As we move into a so what, I want to give you a couple thoughts. One is, I want to remind all of us that your suffering, if you're suffering or when you suffer, it's a stewardship issue. How you and I respond to that matters. If we are faithful in it, God will use us to conform us to the image of his beloved son. Our suffering is a stewardship issue. Secondly, Jesus is better. He's the main thing. He's the main point. So here's some self-examination. Take your time and take your treasure and check it. Those two, for the most part, will tell you and I if Jesus is your main thing. If you really think Jesus is better, if I really think Jesus is better, it will show up in our time. Do I meet with him? Do I grow and nurture this personal, intimate relationship? And secondly, in your checkbook. It's not always true, but it's the first place where I have to start. My heart is reflected in where I spend my time and where I spend my treasure. Take a minute. Consider those two things.